The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. We're finishing up this series on uh, Revelation called Apocalypse. If you're new, uh, my name's John. I'm the director uh, here of uh, Convergence. I'm really glad you're here. I'm glad you made it here tonight. Um, and as we fit, what we want to do tonight is that we're kind of we're going to sort of do a review in a sense, and maybe and maybe reiterate some stuff from last week. Uh, we've been looking at this book that is often pretty intense. Um, it's very misunderstood. It's often misquoted, misused, all kinds of stuff. Uh, one of the things that I've uh, mentioned over uh, the series that, that struck me is that I really want this book to be your book. Um, it has a lot to say to us. Uh, so what we want to do is we kind of want to we kind of want to go from beginning to end uh, tonight, and part of that is to, that we start out with praise. That really, what's going on in the Book of Revelation is is not any different than anything that we see throughout uh, the rest of Scripture. In a lot of ways, uh, we see that there is God, and God is mighty, and God is good. There's articulations of that. Uh, Throughout Revelation, we kind of sometimes what we have is some difficult stuff, and then bursting out of nowhere is just kind of bazonkers uh, worship. I mean, it's going crazy, and that, so we we read these things: "Holy, holy, holy is, is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come." And then we and again we have this huge throng later on it says you're worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men from every tribe language people and nation you've made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise and that actually happens throughout that's part of what's going on here as we, as we remember and we review. That's part of what is actually happening here is that we get invited into uh, a vision of God who is on the throne, who is mighty to save, who loves us, who is good, who is acting, um, who is not as far off as we might think. But we know that even if we um, have a sense of faith, if we grew up in the church, that... Um, that might be true, but what is um, often honest, what is really true, is that often it can be somewhat difficult. Hey, Michael, could you pull down my uh, mic a little bit in there? That'd be great. Get rid of the ring. Um, I remember growing up as a boy. I grew up in the church. I grew up with a, uh, um, a family who um, were followers of Jesus. In fact, a lot of them were professional Christians. They were missionaries and pastors and all stuff. I grew up reading stuff in here that I remember even as, as, a, as a high schooler and younger. I was captured by some of the stuff that, was, that, that they talked about here. We talk, Paul talked about, as he wrote to some of the churches, he talked about surpassing knowledge, unbelievable power, riches, wealth, all this stuff. And I, and I, and I got glimpses of that and I, and I wanted to see it. But more often than not, what I realized is, Right next to that, sometimes even clouding that, was a reality that it was often dark, frustrating, mundane, um, dysfunctional, um, disappointing, discouraging, lonely. One of the things that Revel- Revelation does is it gives us this uh, view of heaven, and it wants us to, to, for our eyes to kind of to rise sort of above the chaos of the moment. That's what John is, is trying to do as, as he's writing this letter to churches that he loves, that he knows are just in the thick of it, like we are. And yet, also, he's given an articulation. In fact, a lot of the book is given an articulation to this uh, in-between time. 
the time when it feels like heaven is really getting crowded out by something else. Um, as I've thought about it, we've talked about time in between the times that, that we believe that when Jesus came, something unique happened, that there, there was something um, history-changing that happened, that heaven, in a sense, started invading our reality right now, that there, be, there was healing and transformation, there was power like never before. And yet, it's not totally fulfilled. And so people will talk about time in between the times. I've started to think about it, I think, you know, now with modern technology and the fact that we can do stuff with iMovie and everything else, it's like the long, slow fade. It's moving, it's going, but it's like painfully, painfully, painfully long. We get glimmers, but yet most of what we see is not a a heaven full of joy, but it's the reality that crucified Jesus that was so threatened by somebody who never raised a hand that decided to nail God to a cross. That's the reality, sometimes, more often than not, that we live in. And so we read about articulations of the four horsemen. And those four horsemen come running through our lives more often than, than not. This is kind of a, a, sort of a modern um, version of that, that that Ron had brought in um, early on. The four horsemen has captured the imagination of culture. You don't have to know anything about Christians or the church to know about the four horsemen, we know, we know about the, the, the kinds of forces that come through and just devastate us, devastate our communities, devastate our families, they, they, if they are not directly um, threatening us, there is a sense that they're, they're always out there. We talked about a little bit last week that there's a sense even that, that with all the advances in technology, so often uh, we're alone. And so I talked about you know, some of these visions from the 1950s of a, of a world in which technology would solve all of our woes. And a lot of, in a lot of ways, technology is great. And yet, more often than not, what happens is you have a super convenient kitchen where little Sally can help mommy. But it turns out mommy doesn't need to be around, so Sally gets to be all by herself and grow up by herself. That with all the conveniences we have, we actually find ourselves lonely. We feel uh, all kinds of events in our life that feel violent and, and, uh, and uncertain, that life can often feel cheap, inauthentic, compromised. That it doesn't even take uh, a particularly uh, Christian or church view to begin to, to wonder if something is going wrong. And so we brought up uh, a New Yorker, the co- cover of the New Yorker uh, last week. And that they began... On the front, they were sort of trying to give an articulation to, to, to sort of this discomfort that we often feel that most of our life is feeling that, that, that they're not against business. This is not to say cities are bad, business is bad, and yet it just seems like there's something wrong. And so they pulled this incredibly interesting religious imagery, the idea that there's somehow this, um, there's some of this kind of uh, scary, um, ancient, pagan, um, worship that is going on in the center of all things. Things have gone um, astray. We find ourselves in the time between the times, a long, slow fade, wondering which way to turn. And John, what he wants to do is he wants to strip away. He wants to help us wrestle with that reality. He wants to unmask some of the things that sometimes seem so confusing for us or just anxiety-producing or... Um, or threatening, he wants to sort of bring them into sharp relief. Um, how we operate with that is often, that's the big question. That so often what we want to do, all, all of us, we want to get out of this in-between time, even though that probably is the best, honest, 
the best and most honest articulation of what our life is full of. If we're going to be totally true, we can, you can't say there isn't some sense of goodness even in culture or, or some sense of God at work, if, especially if you have any sense of, uh, of uh, understanding of faith yourself. And yet there's also all this devastation as well. Scott, we had Scott come in, and, and so you can see the, his pain over there or up here. And so Scott began to paint, as we talked about the four horsemen, as a way to somehow kind of wrestle through an articulation of what does it look like to take seriously that our life can be full of these images of, of whores and, and, and beasts and things that look subhuman. Our life can feel sometimes subhuman or four horsemen, things that are hard to articulate but are threatening. And yet in the midst of it, it feels chaotic, and yet in the midst of it, there is a sense of hope. There is a sense of, of light breaking in. Well, John um, uh, gave us a gift as he wrestled with this to give us uh, not a way um, simply to wrestle with that, but an articulation of that. And I want to read a little bit of that. Um, part of John's training and part of his heart is uh, to write screenplays. Um, and to, to enter into uh, making movies, hopefully, at some point. And so I th- kind of threw out the challenge early on. You know, t- take the image we have, write a short story around it, r- write a poem. Let's begin to, to give an articulation of what we um, believe to be true, especially as we're, read, uh, as we're being guided by revelation. Let's let our imaginations uh, go for it. Um, it's not enough just to say, hey, I know what's true, A, B, and C. We have to have an articulation of what is beautiful and what is ugly. So I'm not going to read it all. I'm not going to nearly do it justice. He's, he, there's copies over there. Uh, we're going to put an uh, electronic copy on the web. I encourage you to read it, especially if, you're, if this is something that kind of captures your imagination at all. But it, within this, uh, th- there is a sense he, he, has, he has some animals that represent people. And so there's kind of this back and forth. And yet there's something that's happened between this man who is tortured. It, it's a, sort of set in a, in a Western setting, this man who is tortured and this wife, and we, we see kind of this kind of back and forth between a, a wolf that represents uh, him in some way and this owl that represents uh, his wife. And then suddenly uh, he comes to a place where he's sitting in a cabin and he's actually is sitting down face to face with his wife that we um, have come to understand has died. And it's a conversation between Charles and Sarah. Charles began... So, oh, so Sarah comes into the family. Let me just give you a little sight. Sarah comes into the family room from the kitchen. Again, this is a small cabin with, rather, with a rather large cup of coffee. She sets it upon the table, and she makes her way over to the rocking chair. She slowly sits into it uh, and begins to rock rather slowly as she gazes into the fire. Charles says, so Sarah, what is it? Sarah, come over here and sit next to me, Charles. I, I, I would like to look upon you once more. So he makes his way over, and they, and they begin this conversation together. Charles is saying, so what, what is there left to say? Sarah, have you already forgotten, my sweet? Let us talk once more before you leave. Charles, what, what's left to talk about? We know what must be done. I, I, know, I know what you intend to do, Charles. I know, and yet you know I would never condone such a thing. Charles begins, and well, why don't you? Uh, and then he hears this howl, this prairie, prairie wolf coming uh, in through the uh, in through the window by the front door, and he runs and he tries to go see what is happening outside. Where is sort of this threat coming from? 
Sarah continues on. Do you not fathom the consequences of the choices that you have made tonight? Will you continue that you will continue to make from this day forth? Charles, I have this feeling you won't let me rest in peace. Sarah, if you knew me as well as you claim, you would know I could never let you continue down this path which you find yourself. Charles, do you realize what I've done? Have you forgotten what these hands are able to accomplish? Sarah, that's no concern of mine. All you need to do is ask for one small thing. Charles, but can it really be so simple? Sarah, offer me that confession. You know, Charles. And in return, you will be able to find what it is that you seek. Charles responds, pity, sympathy, forgiveness are things I do not wish to find. Sarah, Charles, I know the one thing you fear is judgment. You know I hate to see you torture yourself with the one thing that troubles your heart. I will always be here for you. He hears, again, he hears the wild screams from outside. Charles responds, like that animal out there, these hands have brought down someone they cared for. Sarah says, all right, are are you sure that's not what they were meant to do? Agony is not a bedfellow for the misery you place yourself in. What you did was not murder. Charles responds, but whose standards? Protecting, Sarah Sarah says, protecting life is not a sin, Charles. You did what anyone would have done in the situation. But I took a life, but not a soul. To which Charles responds, is there a difference? Charles, now we, the, the scene is set. Charles becomes startled as the front door suddenly bangs open with a surprising force and he begins to calm down. He slowly notices that the, the wolf has begun to make its way inside the house and as he watches all of this, he realizes that the wolf is carrying something in its mouth. Unable to see what it is, Charles rises from the chair and meets the prairie wolf halfway. As he reaches the prairie, as he uh, reaches the prairie wolf, he becomes shocked to see that this that there is an owl limp in its mouth. He's unable to say anything as he watches the wolf drop the corpse at his feet. And now the wolf begins to speak. Do you think that I would let you leave leave us so empty-handed, my friend? <clears throat> we talked about the sense of bearing witness at some point, and I and if we are to bear any kind of witness, give any kind of evidence that is credible, we have to be able to deal with the pain in our life. And, and I, I, I feel like I did apologize because I know I butchered this and, and what John has done, and yet hopefully you got a sense of, of this dialogue between the two in, in which Charles has to wrestle with, am I willing to let go of my past? Am I willing to uh, accept forgiveness? Or am I going to continue to... to um, be plagued the rest of my life, even though I know that I am complicit in, in the, my own heartbreak. I know that in some ways, the work of my hand has done damage to the one that I've loved. And the choice is, what am I going to do with that? If we're to have a faith that is credible, that begins to be real in, in any sense, then it has to be one that is honest. So I want to encourage you to pick up the card. That There's pencils if you want to get up, and you can grab a pencil there if you want, or, or there's some pens in the back. Or you can fill this out, or just to look on that. But on the, on the back of these cards, on, on the front side is Revelation 21 that you can read if you want. Um, I, I gave a brief outline of, basically, if you pulled nothing, if this is your first time, you never heard about Revelation, you just know that it's weird. Here's three things for you to look at and go, at least know that Revelation is saying this. 
But I want to leave you and give you some time to ask this question. Where do you find yourself in the long, slow fade? What's true? Maybe not that you would want to admit to anyone else, but in this time, what is the chaos for you? The sense of being anxious, threatened, bored, addicted, heartbroken, angry, hollow, frenzied, hard of heart, manipulated, manipulating, confused, hanging by a thread. What is it? Just to be honest for a moment, to to slow down, maybe perhaps for the first time this week, to slow down long enough to maybe hear what you've been avoiding for a while, which is to say, um, there's that nagging feeling in my heart. If, If our faith will mean anything, we have to begin with where we are exactly. If we're going to make our way forward, um, you have to know where you are. Where do we find ourselves? Um, if this is sort of the map, if we're going to start moving in any possible uh, direction, we have to first identify, where am I? What do I find myself in? Um, what's the challenge? Guaranteed, every single one of us is facing some sort of challenge, whether it feels uh, like a big deal or not. So let's take a moment. Um, and I just invite you to um, just invite you to, to take some time and, and to listen. To, you can write it down if you like, um, or, or just sit. I'm going to have uh, Carl come up. He's going to sing a song that he played for us earlier on uh, in the series, one that I, I loved. Um, I'll let you sit that. And, and you know, gonna, we're going to play a video here in a moment of kind of a time lapse of Scott of Scott painting this painting. And maybe if it's distracting, don't look, don't look at it, but maybe it's a way for you to think about how are you wrestling with giving some sort of articulation to where you are at and the place that God has called you. Well, if we are going to be honest, we have to take in the good and the bad, but the truth is that we have an abundant hope, an extravagant hope. And I, I think probably the greatest misunderstanding of Revelation is that it is just a book of bad news about a God who is angry at people and is going to um, pour out his wrath because he just longs to squash us. God has a lot of wrath. But that wrath is on everything that destroys you and I and destroys the world that he created and called good and now... It has been, in a lot of ways, marred and destroyed and taken advantage of. And he hates it. And he's full of wrath. That's what he's full of wrath on. And yet, Revelation, so often we hit things like uh, images like beasts and stuff that we, we've looked at and, and the four horsemen and, and images that are, um, that are really confusing for us. Um, and so we just kind of go and we hear all kinds of crazy predictions about it. And we just go, who knows what the heck. And what breaks my heart is that this book is so much about hope. I get follow up with that, though, and realize that we probably have um, a very small idea of the hope that we have in God. That many of us um, have at least heard that there's something about being forgiven of our sins uh, as we come to Jesus. And that is a huge deal. I don't diminish that at all. That's just the starting place. That there is an articulation of hope that we don't know a lot about what heaven looks like. Okay, There's a lot that we just don't know. But what we do know often doesn't even get talked about. And what we do know, these articulations of the future um, or of heaven 
or, you know, however you want to talk about it. The culmination, the God's final restoration, um, it's found in Revelation 21, 22, but often we don't get there. Well, we, we, we cracked that open a little bit last week. And what I want to bring that up is that if we're going to figure out what kind of trajectory we want our lives to be on, all of us are setting our trajectory, whether we like it or not. Hopefully, we're moving in the right direction. You've got to know where you are. Where do we find ourselves? Who am I? What do I have to deal with? You know, what country did I grow up in, for that matter? You've got to take honestly the context you're in, but you have to have an articulation of hope, a passionate vision of hope. And I'm, I'm afraid we don't have much of a vision of hope. We just have a... Uh, we know at some point, we hope that we will be with God, that will be, life will continue on. That's all we know. Scripture, the Bible actually tells us a lot more than that. When we, when we have these two points, then we can figure out, how do I have a life well lived that is significant, um, that grows in a sense of maturity, that grows towards being complete instead of a sense of, uh, well, I made it, but I feel hollowed out. Um, I get to the end and you know people are kind of happy I'm gone because I was a pain in the ass for most of my life. It's a bummer. Yet sometimes we know those kinds of uh, memorials. Instead of the memorial where you just have a sense that, man, this, there was something unbelievable about this person, and yet they're pretty ordinary. This is how we figure out that trajectory. Because, uh, because I think that's one of those things that's hard, I, I, I asked for, ask for a number of folks to give observations. Just look at Revelation 21 22. Dream a little bit. Isaiah 65 is one of those ones that, that, that plays very similar. And so I, Isaiah 65, and I put those on the blog and, and on our Vimeo, and I, I, I hope you'll take a look at them. Um, I, I made a bunch of PowerPoint charts. I mean, I don't, that almost feels wrong, but anyways... <laughs> I made PowerPoint charts just to say, here's boy, here's some observations. Here's someone who's taking the, the Bible seriously and then just dreaming a little bit and saying, this is what I see. Okay, I don't know a lot of stuff, but this is what I see. Well, I took those um, and I, uh, I kind of went through on this week, included you know, some of the writers we've been drawing on, Daryl Johnson, Eugene Peterson, which are phenomenal books if, if you want to get started on this. Uh, I talked to Jeff Van Duzer, head of the business school. Talk to our head of missions as he, as he thinks about mission and development around the world. Talk to our senior pastor, a number of other pastors here as well. And, and I, so I just thought, well, I'm going I'm to try to just distill it even more so. So can we put that up? So here's some observations of what we see on the end. God wins. Okay? And I love, Jeff Van Duzer actually brought this out, but this is one's really, really important. And this goes together with a sense of God saying kind of that ultimate sort of um, No. That sense of justice, the sense that God is going to finally put all things to right. He is going to cast out sin. And that, that a lot of times terrifies us. But we should read that in the positive. That what he's saying is all the stuff that has come in and devastated my creation and my people. No. Done. Over. You can't, you can't bring that in here. That's not what this, this is not what I intend. I will not let you devastate my people anymore. No. God wins, but then also at the end of the day, his way is vindicated. And I think we've got to know this. And I love what Jeff Van Duzer was saying because you just, as a, just pragmatically, even as he has thought about this and he's written on this uh, in the world of business, we have to know. I'm a pragmatist. I have a business background. I want to know, am I going in the right direction? Because so often the way of God... The, the way of even just a vague sense of moral integrity often does not seem like it's going to pan out 
shortcuts pan out, taking out um, any competition in any means possible. That's what seems to get ahead. We look around and we wonder, what happens if I actually take a hit on this one for doing the right thing? As small as the right thing might be, we need to know that God, ultimately God wins. If we don't have a long-term view, we'll do whatever we need to in the short term just to survive. And in the meantime, end up looking uh, like anything but Jesus. When God is, when he has come to say, I want you to, to grow into a fullness of humanity like me. We need to know that God wins, and we see that. The second thing is that there's a vision of heaven that is both better and closer than I imagined. That when we go through... Um, Revelation 21, 22, Isaiah 65, there is this sense that is often surprising to us. It's not we're just floating around. There are some other visions of heaven that are doing something very different in which you, you have you know, many-eyed creatures floating around, right? And they're kind of, um, the, 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 we think, and they have harps. And we think, oh, that's all that we're about. No, you look at this and you see, man, th- there, there is color. There is light. Th- there is a ci- there's a city for goodness sakes. Um, there's a very earthy reality. We see, we see gems. We see culture. We see kings bringing in their glory. That there's a sense that cultures are bringing in the very best of what they've created. And there's part of me that I, I, I look at that and I go, that's actually closer to what I understand. The world I live in, the things I get excited about. When I see sort of life, culture, I, I, I see a sense of closeness to God that I, that I, I can talk about a personal relationship with God, but in many ways, he feels distant right now. I don't get to see him. I don't get to touch him. And yet we hear again and again that we will see his face, that God's presence will fill absolutely everything um, that we experience. It's wonderful, but it's also closer to what I... But, but when it's, as, it being, as it's closer, it actually, for me, is more motivating because I start to go, that's the world I know. The world of floating around with a little pair of wings is not a world I know or a world I particularly want to be in. That doesn't sound like, that doesn't sound very um, hopeful. Why would I want to stick it out for that? Well, the, next, the last thing is that the implications, I think, are, are frightening and exciting. And what I mean by that is that you start to see, for instance, they use the, the um, kind of imagery of foundations. And foundations are foundations and gates in the city, that somehow in the architecture there is something of um, who we are and this world. And you, so you see the gates, you see the 12 apostles, and then the foundations are, are the tribes. And, and that you kind of go, yeah, that's good. That's, you know, we, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel, that's a big deal. If you've read you know, through the Old Testament at all, the 12 apostles, we know they're a big deal. But you just have to, but you have to go back through and actually read about these guys because they're actually a disaster. Most of them are totally obscure. Think about how many outside of the three disciples do you actually... You know there's 12. Get to five. I dare you. Most of them are live in total obscurity. Peter, you know, we go, Peter, James, John. Okay, who else? All these will go, people in total obscurity. We don't know anything about them. Most of our lives feel like we live, are living in total obscurity. Nobody, we're not doing anything huge or important. You look at the 12 tribes of Israel, look in Genesis. It is a disaster. They are violent, selfish, self-indulgent, um, faithless. Um, it goes on and on. You look at them and you go, how in the world would God ever use that? And yet he does. It's exciting because if God can use 
what we see um, as, as some of the people that we like to make heroes, the greats, maybe he can use us. There's something about what I do right now that has lasting value. There's something about the decisions that I make right now that have lasting implications. That on one hand, what I do now matters. That's exciting. I can participate in God's restoration, redemption, healing right now. And it's frightening because that means that what I do matters. And that what I do is an insignificant and I can't just hope that I can live however I want to and then God's going to just kind of, you know, kind of say, well, I don't care, I'm going to throw it away. Now he's going to say, hey, I, what, you, I'm not going to throw away. I call this good. I called you good. I called the world good. We're, I'm not going to throw that away. It's frightening. Um, so we looked at that and, and I, you know, I encourage you maybe a little bit later, you can flip over, you can read, you can read that on the back of your card later, but Two questions for us. I want us to kind of spend a little more time on this because two questions I want to ask Ron and open it up. If you have any questions, uh, we can take those now. We're also going to have time afterwards as well for any, any questions at all about Revelation, let alone tonight. But um, two questions because I think one of the things that struck me about Jeff Van Duzer is he, was, is he talked about things he observed is continuity and discontinuity, and it brought up this idea of resurrection. And I think resurrection is one of those key things. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and he beat death, and we love that. But then, but then that means that, that there might be some sort of continuity that, that what is coming next is not sort of a disembodied reality. We don't know exactly what it looks like, but that, that the body matters, the resurrection matters. And, and so he planted that, and then I was, I, I'm thinking about that, but then that started kind of tweaking my head. And that's a, so tell, help us understand how Revelation fits in if we take the resurrection seriously as good news. What, how does that lead us then into what we see in Revelation? Yeah, it's a great question. And it actually arose in part, at least, last week out of uh, a question that Taylor asked, I think, related to, um, you know, what about the fate of those who die? And we often use language about being with Jesus or being in heaven or going to heaven. Uh, but one of the things... and there. You know, it's interesting, you get to the end of a series like this, and there are so many things in the book of Revelation that I look back on and think, maybe we could have talked about that, but we didn't really, and we've had 10 weeks to do it. Um, But one of the things we didn't talk a lot about was the first seven verses of chapter 20, which are just prior to the vision of the New Jerusalem, in which you have the martyrs who back in chapter 6, remember right after the four horsemen, there were these martyrs under the altar crying out and saying, How long, O Lord? And one of the things we said at that point was the life of faith is a life that's willing to run into the darkness, run into the pain, willing to suffer, willing to follow the slaughtered lamb. And if the lamb has been slaughtered, you basically have in that image, the image of the slaughtered lamb, this idea of resurrection. You see the pain of death in the carcass, and yet this slaughtered lamb now stands in the middle, it's the thing, this is the symbol that orients the entire heavenly throne scene. And John is urging us to run after that lamb and to be like that lamb. And, uh, and one of the things that I think we need to take seriously is that the plan of God, so to speak, or the full expression of the kingdom of God is not to get you out of your body, off this planet, 
into some abstract floating around in space reality where you don't have the cares and encumbrances of this world anymore. Rather, restoration and ultimately resurrection is God redeeming and putting things to right in a physical sense. And the vision of the martyrs then, we start in chapter 6, the ones who ran after the lamb find themselves under the altar crying out, God, when's this all going to end? Or how, how are you going to set this right? And the answer to that is in chapter 20, where the, the vision of the millennium, these people who were martyrs, have now been raised. And John says, this is the first resurrection. This is the resurrection you want to be a part of. Those who ran into the chaos and followed the Lamb have the experience of reigning, being productive, living in a newly created, redeemed state, in a resurrected state. And I, I love what you said about this being both exciting and frightening that what you do actually matters. And if I could take, you know, the, you took the images from Revelation 21 and said, we've got tribes and we've got apostles, really ordinary, fallible, failing often people, and yet they somehow find themselves in the very fabric of God's new creation. And obviously the next step for us to think is, if we begin to live the kingdom vision of the book of Revelation, and this is precisely what John wants his readers to do. Can you see yourself in the new Jerusalem? Just think back for a moment now to chapter 2. To one of the seven churches, John says, if you conquer, if you're faithful, you will be a pillar in the temple of my God. And he's taking them from chapter 2 and their present existence and saying, you will, what you do, what you put your hands, what your life represents, however insignificant it looks to you, resurrection means that you are part of the new creation and you have a significant part to play in God's future vision of all things restored and God with his people. So resurrection, and you remember last week I used the phrase, Resurrection, the definition is life after life after death. And I don't know, maybe some of you have some further uh, questions about that. Uh, John and I talked about it a little bit, and, uh, and, and we were thinking, you know, is there actually evidence that simply being with Jesus um, or, you know, being in a paradise-like state when you die, is there evidence in the New Testament that that's not actually the end of the deal? that that's somehow perhaps life after death, but it's certainly not life after life after death. It's not resurrection yet. And we, th we thought about someone like the thief on the cross to whom Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. There's no sense that resurrection is yet promised to that thief. Paul can say something like, you know what? If I'm absent from the body, I'm present with the Lord. Or he can say something like, you know, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, he says, either side of the coin in the presence of Jesus. So there is this sense that there is an immediate or an intermediate life after death, but that's not the book of Revelation's vision of resurrection yet. And you get this sense that for Paul, everything rides on resurrection. Right? In fact, he says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, right? we're not talking about what happens to you when you die. If there's no resurrection from the dead, 
then we're the stupidest idiots on the planet, right? That's my paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 15. But he basically says, there's no resurrection, we're fools, right? And this thing is a sham. And that to me is evidence that Paul did not think that salvation in heaven was this disembodied get you off the planet because it's hurtling out of control. And, you know, that's one of the things that is so frustrating for me about a lot of versions of the book of Revelation that get taught is people think that Revelation is God's really ticked off. He's going to firebomb the planet. And just before he does that, he's going to lift the few faithful people off of it and get them out of the atmosphere and out of the stratosphere into somewhere else. And that's the reverse, I think, of what Revelation wants to communicate. Yeah. I think that's it's the it, and I think it's the sense when if you're not if you don't necessarily if you haven't bought in to the Bible if you haven't decided that you want to follow Jesus it's not good news we can sort of talk about good news you're like ah it's not good news and I think Brent can I actually bring up that one there's an image from Ken and I I was asking Ken Kirsten he does a lot of work in missions around the around the world and in, in particularly in development and. And Isaiah has caught him. And one of the things, he was, he was trying to get our imagination going. So he said, you know, we're in an election cycle. So let's think about like a, a policy statement. And so what he talked about, he talked about, he looked in there and he goes, I see health care. I see housing. I see labor. In other words, housing, people have homes to live in. Labor, you actually get a good return for, for your work. This, we're not talking about giving you. We're just talking about you actually can earn something. Family, welfare, criminal justice, race relations. So anyways, all that... It's whether one way or the other, what this says is that God actually does it. He cares about the stuff that we care about. Now, you can go at this a million different political ways. The point is that what this does is it, it lends value. And, and George would even say, you know, it lends value. It says art matters. Um, engineering matters. This stuff matters. And I think that's the, the thing that's been so challenging and in some ways so encouraging for me is to see, yeah, actually the stuff that I care about, God does. You know, when you see new creation in such familiar images, um, I think you and I were chatting once and we talked about the new Jerusalem in some ways. The vision of God's new future is um, like one of those, you know, one of those great redemptive stories you hear about where, let's say, you know, a tornado swept through somewhere. And not only do people pick up their lives, not only do communities come together around that kind of tragedy, but in some cases, there are stories of people actually taking the shattered stuff, cobbling it together, and making something new and redemptive and beautiful out of what what represented their pain and their chaos actually becomes the beauty of what's been restored. And in many ways, it's the real life experiences, the things that are important. Those are, I mean, those issues of justice and God setting things to rights. That really is what salvation is. It's Yahweh's full rescue, Yahweh's putting things to rights. So I guess the question is, if that's what resurrection is, if resurrection means a vision of living into how God is putting things back together right, the question for us, and this is the frightening and exciting part, is what part do we get to play? And the, oh my goodness, I am playing a part for for better or for worse. Yeah. There is that kind of frightening aspect to it. One of the other things I want I wanted to, to ask you and, and have you share with us is a little bit is I think that that Revelation twenty one, it, what it's it's really in line with all of the Bible. And I think sometimes we can read this kind of stuff and feel like where does this come from? Especially when maybe we tend we can tend to hang out in maybe just the New Testament. It can feel like it's sort of out of sync. Can you share about how this kind of is actually a fulfillment of what we've been reading through the entire Bible, if you were to start at the beginning? Yeah. 
Well, probably, uh, and the first thing I'm going to say I've referred to before, but probably the best uh, conceptual way to put this together is to say that if Revelation 20, 21, and 22 is kind of like the end bracket, it's a mirror image. It's a bringing back of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So if you read the first three chapters of Genesis, you see that you have good creation. And I actually believe that the, the description in Genesis 1 and 2 is of God building creation like a temple. And in the ancient world, everyone would have read Genesis 1 and 2 and understood Yahweh is building a temple. And what does every temple have in it as a statue or an image? And the human becomes the representative or the statue or the image. Why? Because text tells us male and female, male and female, they were created in his image, right? That's the image in the temple is the human. You come to the other side of the, of the biblical canon in, in the final two chapters of Revelation, and you have this garden again, you have this city, and now here's the fascinating thing. There's no temple in the city in Revelation 21. But the reason is because God himself has become the temple. Now, I just gave you the brackets of the biblical canon, right? Genesis 1, 2, and 3, Revelation 20, 21, and 22. But how do you get from temple with an image to no temple and only God? And the answer is in the Gospels, and the most poignant of these is in John chapter 2. And you guys all probably in one form or another are familiar with Jesus cleansing the temple, right? And he goes and he drives out the money changers, and the Jewish religious leaders come to him and say, what the world do you think you're doing? And Jesus cryptic statement. He says, destroy the temple, and in three days I'll raise it again. And John chapter 2 is fascinating, because they respond to him and they say, are you kidding? It took 46 years to build the temple, and it's not finished. And you say you're going to rebuild it, and then John gives you this editorial comment and he says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. In other words, when Jesus critiqued and and cleansed the temple, he replaced it with himself. And it's one of the reasons why he was eventually charged with blasphemy. You do that kind of stuff in Jerusalem, it'll get you crucified, right? And, And so, but he replaces the temple with himself, and that's precisely what we find in Revelation. Yahweh, God... Uh, is with his people. And so this idea that God wants to be among his people, we can actually trace this, you know, right from the garden to conversations with Noah and Abraham to the presence of God in Sinai with a tabernacle and with a temp- with a cloud and then the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus replacing the temple, the spirit coming at Pentecost, God's presence among his people, and ultimately the book of Revelation. So the one thing I would urge you to consider is that the things we're reading in Revelation are not foreign to the rest of the Bible. Um, in fact, you may remember that the very first thing I said on the first week here my, my number one assumption about the book of Revelation is it's a Christian text. In other words, if, if you read Revelation and it doesn't sound like the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I would urge you to read it a second and a third time. That's really what it's on about. So I could go on with other details, but I would suggest to you that this idea of God being with his people and the presence of God and then embodied in Jesus and then realized in the new Jerusalem, that's one of the things that ties all this together. 
um, passionate about this, and I wanted us to read this book, even though I know it was a difficult one, um, because uh, really because of our mission statement, what we want to be about. That um, we've talked about this in, in August, and uh, uh, it's articulation that sort of guides us. That that what we are about is that we want to see God's future released today. What that means is that you that you in here are the future leaders. In fact, you're leading already, really. Let's be honest. And you're going to be leaders whether you want to or not. Um, Dr. Guter, who was with us, talked about this idea of witness. And he said, you know what? When, sometimes we talk about witness in the church, and there's all, kinds of, there's all kinds of misunderstandings around witness. But he goes, it's not a question of whether we're going if to... If, you, if you've said yes to Jesus, it's not a question of whether you're a witness or not. It depends on whether you're just a, a bad one or a good one. Okay? You could be a horrible witness and, and think that you're not. You'll be a leader, whether you think or not. And what I want to see happen is at right now that we begin to, to, to be a community that helps one another um, get on a trajectory of being the kind of people who, when, our, when we're, uh, our kids are looking to us, they're thankful that what we have done for them. That we are the kind of people that, that we are bringing this uh, we're giving witness to, we're leaning in, we're sacrificing, we're serving um, our communities, our families, our businesses, our industry, uh, the academy, our, our colleges, the labs that we work in, the office towers that we're in, that somehow what we're doing is that we are moving towards a place that is truly good news for all of creation to the extent that we can, with the 10 feet in front of us, with the power that we think we have or we don't have, and that starts with us. It starts with us taking seriously our own brokenness and beginning to be honest and put that back together. It always starts with us realizing that we are lost without Jesus. And yet we move forward. The, Brennan, is there, is there a blow-up of this image? I'm not sure if I got, the, got it in there or not. If Brennan has it or not. What I love about... Uh, the designer that helped me with this and with Revelation is that I didn't want, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was come up with some kind of 80s butt rock sort of <laughs> images of Revelation, right? Seven horns and devils and stuff. Anyways, um, I love this image that this uh, Brian Glasgow, who's a designer, I actually think he, what he did is, yeah, this is part of witness. This is, he's a designer. This is what he's good at. My hope for us as a community is that we're a group of people who begin to move out of the cold places where we live, and begin to move towards life. That God, in a sense, has, has lit a flame in a world that is dark and cold and dreary, and all around that, life is bursting forward, and that we're the kind of people that say, wherever we're at, I'm moving towards that, and I'm going to grab somebody, and I'm going to take them with me. I'm going to help them along, and probably they're going to help me along at some point. That my, my heart for all of us is that we're a community by, by the little things that we do, by the big things that we do. That we are a, a, a community that begins to, to give evidence that there is a God who is full of love, is absolutely good, and that is, that is available to every single person that we interact with. It, it informs everything we do. It's why we go to Haiti, so that we can be part of bringing healthy drink, drinking water. Because God cares about that. We do that, we grow, and we serve. We do that when we do small groups, when we do service nights, when we just have fun, when we have a meal, when we go bowling. When everything that we do, every act of service that we do is always about our growing and always is about our serving. 
My hope for every single one of us is that we begin to be creative about what that looks like for this time and this place. I want you to know your Bible. I want you to know the vision that God actually has for you. I want you to be culture hounds. I want you to know the vision that God has that is so good and beautiful that you can go out into the world and you don't have to worry about whether it's Christian or not, but you can go, you know what? Gosh, that's a little bit like what the kingdom is. That's a little bit about what God values. I'm going to support that. I'm going to encourage that. I'm going to encourage that direction because that's the direction of what God is leading. And in those places where we realize that... um, relationships are being destroyed that if this is about manipulation that we actually stand and we actually call for something better that we reach out when nobody expects us to that we offer mercy that we make the hard calls that we're a people who not every some people are going to look and that's going to be threatening especially if you threaten power if you threaten something that they're trying to get away with It's not always going to be helpful, but they're going to look at us fundamentally everywhere we are and go, I'm thankful that person is here because I know I can trust them. That's my prayer for us as a community. Living into that is huge. And um, it takes us to the the table. What I want to encourage us to do is to spend our... uh, our last bit of time by just doing, spending time in response can feel overwhelming to have a sense of where, how do I move from the brokenness to what is whole? How do I take one step forward? That's what I want you to think about. I want you to think, answer the question on this card. It says, you can think of it this way. When I read Revelation 21, 22, I'm inspired. It inspires me to dream of a day when. What is it? I dream of a day when this is stopped. This happens. This is restored. This is healed. I also want you to think, what is it, what's the one thing in which you can begin to say, as difficult as it is, as powerless as I feel, um, I'm going to start moving this way. There's a list of things. What's the one thing that you can begin to do to say, I'm going to start moving this way? And for some of us, it might simply to say, you know what, I actually want to be part of this. And so I want to say yes to Jesus for the first time. So we're going to take some time. We're going to start with communion, and then uh, there'll be a number of opportunities. I want to encourage you, you know, we read in Revelation that uh, despite what we often feel, our prayers are powerful and effective. And I want to encourage you to grab a candle and light it. Let that be your prayer as you say, God, in the midst of what I'm in, I'm lifting my prayer to you for you to act. Um, I'm going to encourage you to take communion. Communion is always that first response to say yes to Jesus. We do it uh, uh, again and again. There'll be some elders in the back. Um, where is Lee? We got a we got a husband and a wife tag team right here. Eric actually was our elder last year, uh, and his wife is an elder this year uh, as well. And they would love to pray for you. They would love to say, "How do I encourage you? How do I release God's future uh, today?" So they would love to pray uh, for you afterwards, if if that would be um, helpful. So there's a number of things that, that we can um, do together. I feel like I'm, I'm missing something, but um, let it be what it is. We read that um, as Jesus spent his last night um, with his disciples, he was going to go away, it was about to get ugly. He took um, elements, he took bread, and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. Don't ever forget you're not alone. My body for your body. My life 
for your life. The same way he took the cup, we read, and he, he uh, took juice or something a little more charged up. He poured it out. He said, this, is, this cup is a new covenant. It's a commitment I'm making with you. Um, it is a commitment based on my faithfulness and not your faithfulness. It is a commitment that if you, if you renege on the obligation, it's not like a contract, I'm going to be faithful to you. This is for the forgiveness of your sins, not because you did anything to deserve it, but because I did something to deserve it. Do this in remembrance of me. We read that as often as we eat this bread and uh, drink this cup, we proclaim Christ's death till he comes. In other words, we say, look, I'm with Jesus. In my past is forgiveness. In my present is power. In my future is hope. That's my identity. Um, and that's what we're called to do. And to, and to come and partake and to say, I, this is not about me doing anything, earning. This is about me joining what God's doing. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for all that you um, have given to us. Lord, thank you for this crazy book and how it uh, speaks to our imagination. Um, thank you for the instruction in, elsewhere in your scripture that is very straightforward. And it's like a list of things to do. But Lord, thank you that you take us as whole people. You speak to all of who we are. Lord, I pray for this community that you would fire our imaginations in such a way that we would dream big dreams, that we would be people who are extravagantly hopeful, that we would be those who do the right thing, love and serve and create, even if it costs us something in the short term. May we be those who um, our neighbors look to, and whether they get it or not, whether they understand it or not, whether they think that... Christianity is something they want or not, that they look and they say, I'm glad that they are there. I'm glad they're in my life. Because they're bringing some sense of flourishing and truth and healing into my world. Lord, help us when it is difficult, when it is frightening, when what we have to say and who we are is not welcome. Help us to be faithful. Lord, we come before this table and ask that you give us the strength that we need in your name. Amen.